Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. Outside of the Bible, perhaps even including the Bible, no Jewish text has been the subject of more study or the object of more reverence than the Talmud. As a commentary on the Mishnah, a law code compiled and published orally around the third century of the Common Era, the Babylonian Talmud constitutes something like the source code of Jewish epistemology, part legal compendium, part biblical exegesis, part religious literature, the Talmud almost defies definition, let alone explication, especially for those not steeped in Talmud study. But those looking for a way into Talmud have a compelling new book they can consult, one that moves the tumblers of this towering text. The book is The Talmud, a Biography, published this year by Princeton University Press as part of its Lives of Great Religious Books series. The Talmud, a biography, provides a comprehensive survey of the Talmud's genesis, development, and influence, as well as a deep dive into its inner workings. The Talmud, a biography, offers general readers an excellent opportunity to explore the Talmud as a text and as a series of texts, and to gain an appreciation for its importance to Jewish and indeed Western religion, philosophy, law, and ethics. The author is Barry Scott Wimpheimer, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Law at Northwestern University, and he joins me today to discuss his new book. Professor Wimpheimer, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, David. So I guess my first question is, uh, and it's I'm, I may be phrasing it provocatively, but deliberately. So what gave you the temerity, the nerve to make you think that you could write this book, which is an excellent book? It's a huge topic. And the books in this series are not gigantic books. You had to take on a massive subject in a very concise framework. Why did you want to do it? I'm glad you asked it because it, it'll let me explain a little bit about how this book came into being. Um, I was at an academic conference probably around 12 years ago, and I saw an announcement from Princeton University Press that they were going to have this new series called Lives of Great Religious Books. And the, the conceit of the series was that authors were going to write biographies of books. Mm-hmm. And um, I had for a long time been feeling like there needs to be a place to talk about the Talmud, not only as an ancient text, but also in light of its reception history. And the way we academics tend to periodize often limits us. So if you're a specialist in Talmud, your training is really in late antique history and literature and culture. And, uh, and you're not necessarily, therefore, going to write a book that's also going to talk about medieval treatments of the Talmud or modern, the, the role of the Talmud in modernity. And I thought this series um, really lends itself to that because by by doing a biography of books, you're treating them as living entities and you're not treating them as something that's just fixed in the time that it was written. So from that moment on, I kind of have had it in the back of my head that I would like to do a biography of the Talmud. Uh, I agree that it's a little bit of a challenge because the Talmud is much larger than many of the books that have already appeared in the series. But right. at the same and, time, the, the Talmud has been my life for such a long time, and I, I love it, and I'm passionate about it, and I felt like I could do a good job of it. That's, it's interesting that you say that it's been a part of your life for a long time, because you open the book um, and sort of orient us toward the Talmud by uh, using um, uh, a scene from Chaim Potok's The Promise, which uh, is the story uh, of a young man confronting some of the exegetical challenges of the Talmud and the cultural challenges of being a certain kind of interpreter of the Talmud. I got the feeling uh, that Chaim Potok's work was important to you in some sense, or that perhaps you saw yourself in that work in some sense. Can you talk about why you decided to use that as the way into the Talmud? I mean, I, I, you're, you, you definitely caught on to something. The Chaim Potok um, book, The Promise, and the tension that it, that it 
really thematizes in its central character um, who is simultaneously studying in a very thinly veiled version of Yeshiva University, uh, which Potok calls Hirsch University, and he is the son of a text critic. So he is the son of someone who is studying the Talmud as a modern critic would, but he's being trained in a school where he is taught to study it in a very traditional way, and the tension between those two, which comes to a head in a, in a climactic scene in which he's initially denied his ordination, even after he demonstrates his tremendous textual abilities, because he's using this kind of heretical text criticism within a traditional framework. And uh, it definitely spoke to me because I, um, I, I was raised in a traditional environment. I learned to study Talmud in a traditional setting. But when I finally discovered what people sometimes call the joy of studying Talmud, the part of me that enjoyed, the thing that I enjoyed about Talmud was a certain type of intellectual satisfaction that I slowly came to learn. It took me a while to realize this, but it slowly, slowly came to learn was really associated with a certain kind of historical and critical understanding of the text and its history and where it came from. And when I was in rabbinical school um, at Yeshiva University, I did experience many of the same tensions that the central character in Potok's The Promise did. So uh, that book spoke to me, and I kind of feel like I lived it in some way. So I also find that, that Potok, from, from my experience teaching undergraduates at Northwestern and other places, I have found that um, you know Potok's book was a bestseller. It's fairly well known, and it's a pretty easy way to um, get people up to speed on some of the stakes. And, and even if they can't understand the stakes themselves, they can appreciate that there are communities of people for whom these issues of how you interpret thorny passages um, take on a lot of meaning. And you, you um, develop a really interesting uh, sort of structure, uh, a sort of template, a matrix for how to the different ways that the Talmud has been both put together and the way it is interpreted. And we're talking about the biography of a book, after all, that sort of has its biography wound into its own text and around it, albeit it's also interwoven with myth and history and biblical exegesis and lots of other things. But the main categories, uh, as I uh, read it, that you have developed, talk about the Talmud's essential enhanced and emblematic levels or layers. And you talk about the central character and the promise as um, addressing all of those, each of those in a very creative way. Can you help us understand what it means when you refer to the essential, the enhanced, and the emblematic Talmud? Uh, what does that mean and how does it help us understand what the Talmud is? I'm glad you uh, asked that question because I think my framework in this book is one of my major contributions. Um, the way that I'm framing the Talmud and uh, just the, the backstory of this, I would say um, when I was a younger man and I was fighting passionately for certain understandings of the Talmud as opposed to other understandings of the Talmud, I believed that there were certain true notions of the Talmud, and there were other ones that were not as true or even not true at all. And as I've become older and started to reflect back on some of those fights that I had in, in my, in my um, coming of age as a Talmud scholar, I've come to realize that, that when we talk about the Talmud, we're actually talking about different things. So I came up with this framework of the three E's, the essential, the enhanced, and the emblematic, to try to create space for the different ways in which people have historically and still today encountered the Talmud. So when I talk about the essential Talmud, what I'm describing is I'm describing the original work of literature, the work of literature that was composed orally by a group of rabbis between 200 and 500 roughly, and uh, the original meaning that was intended and probably absorbed um, at the time that it was produced. And that's most of, most of what academics like myself are focused on when we work on Talmud, is we're trying to recover the historically original meaning of the text, recognizing that's, that's sometimes difficult, but that's, that's what we're trying to do. That's the essential Talmud. The enhanced Talmud is the Talmud as it has been studied 4,000 years in traditional circles. So that's a version of the Talmud that has picked up and has accumulated lots and lots of additional textual layers on top of the original text. And those textual layers interpret the Talmud, and then they themselves are subsequently interpreted by other texts. And so the Talmud is at the center 
of a, of a, of a much larger framework of interpretation. And when you go to a traditional yeshiva and you claim to be studying Talmud for most of your day, what that actually consists of is a combination of studying the original text of the Talmud, but also a lot of the study of Talmud commentary, a lot of the study of codes of law that are based on conversations with the Talmud. There's uh, a lot of time spent looking at responsa, which are letters the rabbis write about legal issues. And even if you're not thinking about the legal side of things, if you're thinking about the, the history of Jewish philosophy or Jewish thought, uh, Jewish mysticism, a lot of what happens there is happening. Jewish mysticism or Kabbalah is in conversation with the Talmud, and Jewish philosophy is in conversation with the Talmud. So those people who, who are raised in a traditional setting and come to think of the Talmud within the traditional environment generally don't limit themselves to the historically original text, what I call the essential text, they actually are open to the whole framework of additional texts that have accumulated on the Talmud over time. So those are the enhanced, the, the um, essential and the enhanced are the two primary um, interpretive frameworks in which we encounter the Talmud. And I already mentioned that the, the central character in Potok's The Promise, Ruving Malter, is torn because his father is someone who is interested in the essential Talmud, who is a text critic interested in the historically original meaning of the text. And his teacher in yeshiva is interested in the enhanced Talmud, in the Talmud as it was understood traditionally and with all the materials that accumulated on it. The third register, the third register is, uh, so not only am I innovating in this book the very idea, the very idea of this framework of three different Talmuds, but the third framework, I think, is um, entirely my own innovation. I don't think it has been noted before. Um, I think we get distracted by the semiotics of the Talmud. We get distracted by the fact that the Talmud is so rich when you study it internally. It has so much content that we don't think to, to look at the Talmud as a symbol, right? Mm. How, the, how, mm -hmm. the Talmud, how the Talmud has been meaningful to people in the world who don't actually have a deep encounter with the Talmud, who don't really read it very well or in depth, struggle to figure out its contradictions and resolutions, those people still have a relationship with the Talmud. And I, you know, I was drawn to this by um, recent stuff about the Korean Talmud, which it turns out, if you peel it back, there are these books in Korea, many of which are made for children and are illustrated, that are really only loosely related to the Talmud in terms of content, but people in Korea label them the Talmud, and they think they're talking about the Talmud, and they refer to them as the Talmud. So it's a very interesting cultural phenomenon. And rather than just dismiss it as saying that's not the Talmud, I wanted to think about what if that is a different kind of Talmud. And so I started mm -hmm. thinking about the various ways in which people interact with the Talmud symbolically. So in the Ruven Malter story in The Promise, what I pointed out is that even though there is a debate going on between his teacher and himself, over how one interprets the Talmud. And that is very much a content debate about you know, the meaning of a passage and how you're going to resolve problems in certain lines of the passage. Will, will you use manuscripts to explain how the problem historically emerged as a mistake and then you will use a manuscript to fix that mistake and explain the problem away like a critic would do? Or will you just accept that the problem exists in the text and use analytic logic as a way around the problem as mm -hmm. traditional commentators do. And that's what Ruben Malter encounters within his world. But what I pointed out is that the way Potok uses the Talmud and the way this fight is happening, one recognized within it, a, there's a symbolic struggle, the struggle over who's going to control the Talmud. And there's a whole layer of meaning there about controlling the Talmud being a symbol of who's going to speak for Judaism in a post-Holocaust world. So Potok sets the book in 1950. Uh, it's written in 1969, but it's very much about the clash between um, Eastern European traditional Holocaust survivors and Ruven Malter, who is a very comfortable American Jew. And some of the debates that he has with his teacher, the book will explicitly say, are debates about, you know, the teacher is so nervous about the, the problem of this American critical interpretation some point in the book, there's a claim made, you know, if, if we accept this kind of critical interpretation, then we're finishing Hitler's work for him. Um, so what Potok is doing is he's using the Talmud as a symbol, and it becomes this tug of war between the two major characters. And that's really how the novel uses them, uses it. The novel doesn't really get very deeply into 
um, the content of the Talmud. But it, I think that what the novel's doing is it's treating the Talmud in this symbolic way, in a way that the Talmud has been treated uh, throughout history. So in the medieval disputations, when the Talmud becomes the centerpiece of some Jewish-Christian strife, it's also primarily important to understand that, that the Talmud is symbolizing the Jews within that discussion. Really interesting. You know, what also is interesting about the book is how uh, you have organized it, where some might include a discussion of the emblematic Talmud, as you call it, um, its uh, fields of cultural production, uh, its reception history, and then dive into a particular portion of the text. You actually do it in reverse. You you lead the reader on a deep dive into a portion of Mishnah and then how uh, how that portion of Mishnah is interpreted. And at the end of the book, you talk about how uh, the Talmud is reflected and refracted in cultural production. It's really interesting because by the time the reader gets to that portion of the book, they have a really deep or should have a really deep understanding of how uh, a single portion uh, is interpreted, the layers of its interpretation, the history of its interpretation, and how uh, those interpretations spread and are constantly disputed, either through uh, responsa or through codes. How did you arrive at that aspect of the organization of your book, and why does it why does it work so well? Um, uh, first of all, I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. You liked it, and you think it works. Well. I did. I admit uh, it. I liked it. Um, I wanted the I want I really wanted to embrace the conceit of a biography, and part of what I wanted to do in writing the book um, within this series was to notice all the places in which the Talmud gets treated something like a person or personified. So um, the structure, the order of the book, emerges out of my attempt to um, arrange, the, arrange the Talmud's life like a human life. So I start off with gestation and birth, mm -hmm. um, and then I, I, I go on to anatomy. Um, and then I wanted to describe relationships. Um, so after anatomy, I wanted to describe like the, how the Talmud lives. Um, and so I, I, it was a little more difficult to do uh, at that point in the book, but I, uh, chapter three is called Election, How the Talmud's Discourse Developed. Chapter four is about is called rivals, naysayers, imitators, and critics. And what I had in mind with these two chapters was I wanted to have one chapter, which was the internal Jewish conversation about the Talmud, the, the interpretive dynamics that create the enhanced Talmud. And, and then I wanted to move from that to a uh, to a chapter that was that included all of the negative energy that the Talmud as a person endured. So all mm -hmm. of the rivals, the naysayers, the imitators, and the critics, these are these are forces within the history of the Talmud that could have led to a very different outcome in terms of the Talmud's survival and success. Uh, we sometimes we sometimes tend to do something like a victor's history where we write backwards and we, we say, oh, the Talmud is such a perfect thing that, of course, it was inevitable that it would have the kind of success and lasting impact that it had. But um, that's kind of a naive way of doing things. And when we look at all of the negative energy that the Talmud endured through its history, we, we then can see that history could have gone in a lot of other different directions. And we also can see that, ironically, a lot of that negative energy, a lot of the, and, and especially the symbolic negative energy that was directed at the Talmud, actually helped make the Talmud what it is. The more outsiders, heaped opprobrium on the Talmud, the more insiders wanted to embrace this text. Mm. So that, that, that's how I ended up with this structure. And then I, the, last, the last chapter is called Golden Old, Age, Golden Old Age, the Talmud and Modernity, Three Stories. So I was, I, was trying to, I was trying to map a life. I started with gestation and birth, and I finished with Golden Old Age. At different points in different drafts, the middle chapters had titles that were more closely related to human development and, uh, and aging. Um, but at various points, I had to I had to shift towards things that were that would make the content clearer. And this is all very tricky because uh, many of our listeners will know this. Uh, many may not. Uh, you know, you're talking about something whose gestation uh, took centuries and whose birth uh, also took centuries. Uh, and it's 
as a, as we mentioned previously, its its commentary is has become part and parcel of what it itself is. So, in talking about a specific passage. Uh, you, in writing the biography of this book, also have to go through the entire gestation history of this particular passage and its reception. I don't know if you uh, have your book in front of you or or uh, the uh, or the portion of Mishnah Baba Kama um, that forms the basis of the Talmud. But I'm wondering if you if you do, can you read it for us and walk us through? what's going on so that listeners can get a taste of what the essential problem is from square one. Uh, I do have my book in front of me. It's on page nine. Oh, page nine. Okay. So this is Mishnah Babakama, chapter two, Mishnah three, the second clause. A dog who took a cake baking on top of hot coals and went to a haystack. It ate the cake and set fire to the haystack. On the cake, an owner pays full damages. But on the haystack, an owner pays half damages. So that's okay, the, what? that is the, the clause of the Mishnah that forms the basis of a Talmudic debate that I um, that I use as an example in the book. Okay, and on the next page, you have a, a brief um, uh, excerpt from Tractate Baba Kama in the Babylonian Talmud about rabbinic. Uh, that, that includes rabbinic dialogue around this question. And could, would you mind reading that and helping yeah, so, us understand so, what's um, going on? This passage in the Talmud, the Talmud is structured formally um, as a commentary to the Mishnah, but anyone who has experience studying Talmud knows that the Talmud is one of the most disloyal commentaries you can find. <laughs> right, it, will, right. it will start talking about the Mishnah and then become very easily distracted and free associate to something entirely different. And often right. it's, it's off topic within a few, within a few lines. Um, but in this case, uh, the example that I use is, is a passage that actually remains on topic, and the topic that it's interested in is this topic of fire liability. So that Mishnah that I just read was about a dog taking a cake, setting fire to a haystack, um, and whether the owner has to, the owner of the dog has to pay damages for the cake or the haystack. And the Mishnah had said, full damages for the cake, half damages for the haystack. Um, on this Mishnah, the Talmud cites a debate between two early rabbis, two third century rabbis. And I'll read, I'll read the debate. Um, this is from Babylonian Talmud Baba Kama 22a. It was said, Rabbi Yochanan said, his fire, because it is his arrow. And Reish Lakish said, his fire, because it is his property. So both Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish want someone who owns fire that does damage to be liable for the damage the fire does. The question is, what is the grounds for liability? Rabbi Yochanan says that fire is like an arrow in the same way that if I shoot an arrow and I damage something, I am liable for the damage the arrow caused. If I light a fire and it spreads, I'm liable for the damage the fire caused. Mm -hmm. Reish Lakish, on the other hand, compares fire to property. So in the same way that if I own something such as an animal and the animal does damage, I'm liable because I'm the owner of that animal. Um, I'm liable for fire because if I start a fire, it is like I own it. It is like my property. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the fundamental debate, conceptual debate between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, these, these two third century Palestinian rabbis that forms the basis for the, for the Talmud's um, follow-up conversation. You draw the reader through a great deal of debate around that question and what is the essential kernel of that question? Obviously, on its surface, it's a legal question, but it's also a profound philosophical and moral question. It derives, it must derive in some sense from a question surfaced in biblical text. How does this help us understand the Talmud? What are the steps that you take the reader through to help us understand why this problem of uh, property or personal liability um, endures as something that people study thousands of years later. So one, one of the curious things about the Talmud is that people do continue to study the Talmud and they continue to study passages like this, despite the fact, I would say, to correct you a little bit, despite the fact that I, I don't know that there's any deeper moral or philosophical um, depth to their debate. Um, 
there could be, there are sections, there, there are places in which um, the fire is connected to the fire of the destruction of the temple, and I reference that in the book. Uh-huh. Uh, but within this passage, I don't know that there's any, any greater depth than what is going on in terms of trying to figure out what the definition of fire is and what its liabilities. The rabbis who produced the Talmud and whose conversations populate the Talmud, they were scholastics. They were people who were devoted to textual study, and for them, textual study was the be-all and end-all of existence. So in terms of justifying what they were doing, they didn't, they didn't feel like justifying these kinds of conversations by, by claiming that they were going to allow them to get to, uh, for example, a deeper knowledge of God or a, uh, a profound understanding of some of the most difficult questions of human existence, which, which isn't to say that there aren't Talmudic passages that do deal with those, mm-hmm. but much of the Talmud is, is dealing with these kinds of fairly technical, legal, narrow, and nuanced debates, and what what makes the Talmud so fun to read and so intellectually satisfying is that it is a, a tremendous exercise in close reading and in logical analysis. They are, they are, these rabbis from the third century, they've inherited a whole set of legal materials from the earlier rabbis, from the rabbis before 200, when, as you said, um, the, we estimate the Mishnah to have been organized. Mm-hmm. So they, they, are, they have collected all of this information, these legal rules from rabbis who are their predecessors, who they venerate. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to update these legal rules to understand how they become concepts, how they become fundamental legal concepts that can then ultimately be the basis for really grounding the religious tradition. And from their perspective, even though this is a question of tort liability, of like damage that someone's property does to someone else, that's no less religious than conversations about which sacrifices you bring or which rituals you conduct on Yom Kippur. From their perspective, all of the stuff that they inherit from the previous rabbis, including these tort law conversations, are part of their scholastic discipline. And their scholastic discipline in the study of Torah, as they understand it, is the, the ultimate religious activities, the ultimate behavior that they're going to engage in. So, and where they get to, and what I try to do in leading people through this passage, is I try to I try to show that there is real intellectual depth in their conversation. They are really attacking this question of fire liability, and they go at it from a number of different vantage points. And there are various steps within the Talmudic passage. And then in a subsequent chapter, after I've after I've um, articulated, um, I use this this example to demonstrate how a traditional reader would read. And I also use this mm-hmm. example to, to, to show how a current academic would read, which is a little different than how Ruben Malta reads, because Ruben Malta was an academic in the 1960s. Um, right. And academia has come pretty far since then. So I, I, I use this as an example of how traditional readers read. I use it as an example of how critical readers read. And then I, I in, a, in a subsequent chapter, I use it as an example to work through the different medieval commentaries and the way they read. Because the, part of the story of the Talmud, the enhanced Talmud, is the story of what happens between 1,000 and 2,000 when people are interpreting the Talmud and the Talmud comes to take a position of such cultural importance. The stakes are so high that every line of the Talmud is parsed by multiple interpreters coming from different cultures with different approaches and possibly with different literary genres. And I, I use this example to show how a single text like this can get refracted in different ways in these different places. Mm-hmm. Which is really fascinating. You you do talk about uh, how um, interpretations both uh, of the rabbinic sages and of later interpreters really highlights, and this is a quote from page 96, highlights the degree to which it is the legal lens rather than the lens of lived life that is the dominant one through which the rabbis choose to process the world in which they live. But in the responses that that you're talking about, and you spend some time particularly on uh, Maimonides and the Vilna Gaon, uh, 
these become, although they're primarily through a legal lens, that the text becomes the basis of lived life. It's not really so much the the uh, original lens through which the rabbis look. They're looking insistently legally. But then it is that interpretive lens that becomes the basis for the response of the correspondence across large distances and sometimes considerable time between people in one place and the rabbinic authorities who might be quite distant. And these interpreters have to deliver uh, legal rulings on urgent questions of lived life. How, again, going back to this passage, um, did you explore specific questions that came back to this passage in the responsa? And how did that reflect on how the Talmud became the basis of lived life in the medieval era and forward? So I did, I, there is a section in the book where I come back um, in my treatment of responsa to talking about how, how this passage, even though it seems like it's a scholastic passage that has nothing to do with everyday life, but because the study of Talmud becomes so central to the intellectual production of rabbis, and because the Talmud ends up forming the basis for conversations about all areas of practical life, Within modern responsa, this passage shows up in a variety of places. So on page 142, I reference, I reference some responsa from the modern period, one by Rabbi Shlomo Kluger, who is a turn of the 19th century rabbi. And he uses this very passage about fire liability to think about whether you can use a machine to make matzah that would be usable for the Passover Seder. And the way he uses it is quite simply to think, you know, if an arrow is an extension of my body and fire can be analogized to an arrow, then maybe a machine can also be analogized to an arrow. And then a machine can be an extension of my body and I can use a machine to create matzah. Mm -hmm. um, and David Svi Hoffman, a, a rabbi who was about a half century after Kluger, um, also can, uses this issue, the issue of, of fire liability, when thinking about whether it would be permissible to cook on the Sabbath using a timer, right? So the, the, the issue is, you know, if fire is really an arrow, and if I set a timer before the Sabbath, then maybe it's like I'm cooking on the Sabbath, right. or maybe it isn't. Right. Um, and, I, and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, an even more current rabbi who died in 1986, he uses this material when thinking about the social status of a man who has had prostate removal surgery. So completely unrelated, you would think, right, right. To, to this issue. But, but he's, he is interested in, um, he is interested in possibly using this passage as a way around the problem of the Bible's injunctions against castration. So he's going to try to use this passage to actually separate the man who's getting the prostate removed from responsibility for that action. So, I mean, it's a very creative a response that, that, that arrives in this place, but it demonstrates how these kind of very obscure and seemingly scholastic and almost irrelevant discussions, because tort liability gets you to a place of deep legal conceptual depth, it ends up being used in modern cases, even though you, you would think it doesn't have as much relevance. Really interesting. So how, um, given this fact, um, you, you also address, given the sort of ongoing interpretive uh, fertility uh, that the Talmud makes possible, it's also made possible uh, lots of fields of cultural critique, of critiques of knowledge and metaphysics. It's actually uh, very influential in ways both positive and negative for ecumenical dialogue and Christian-Jewish relations. Can you provide us with some example, some idea or kernel from the book that sheds light on what sort of uh, interpretive energy the Talmud has lent also to scholarship. You talk a little bit about how uh, it helps sort of develop philosophical and influence philosophical disciplines, but you've also talked toward the end of the book about how 
um, about how the Talmud is beginning to be read differently, not only in the academy, but outside of it, and especially by non-religious individuals, non-Jewish individuals in Israel. The secular reading and study of the Talmud has become a big uh, has become something of a phenomenon in recent decades. Can you talk a little bit about how you explore that in the book? One of the points I try to make in the book is that, at least with respect to modern factions of Judaism, it's fascinating to see how modern factions have interacted with the Talmud. And there's, there's basically a recurring narrative that we find, whether you're talking about um, Reform Judaism or Hasidism, whether you're talking about Zionism or feminism, the, the, the typical story is that the Talmud represents tradition and communal, communal authority. And so the initial move of each of these factions when encountering, um, when trying to establish themselves and is trying to establish their credibility in the world is to push the Talmud away and to renounce the Talmud, to sever themselves from the Talmud, to say, we are not Talmudic Jews. And then they come back, and then what's remarkable is how in each of those cases, after some period of distance, after some period of pushing the Talmud away, what ends up happening inevitably is a return to the Talmud, a reclaiming of it, and a reinterpretation of it, which is part of how the Talmud is taking on so many different new interpretations today. So some of the ones you referenced what's going on in Israel with secular Israelis um, discovering or rediscovering the Talmud, secular Israelis who have not been exposed to the Talmud in their um, Jewish, their strong primary school Jewish education hasn't taught them about the Talmud because the and, Zionist movement was, right. was very critical of the Talmud. Right, and, the Talmud and you point out in the book that Ben-Gurion yeah. ben was very critical and really wanted, in a way, to leave rabbinic Judaism and Talmudic Judaism behind. Isn't that right? Absolutely. So the, yeah. the Zionism associates Talmudic Judaism with the diaspora. Right. And part, part of the, the, the new Zionist push was towards the Bible and away from the Talmud. Um, so the fact that secular Israelis are now starting up yeshivas in Tel Aviv, where they're studying Talmud, and a secular woman who was a member of the Knesset, um, uh, Ruth Calderon, um, quoted the Talmud and, and gave a whole speech from the floor of the Knesset as her introduction to the Knesset. And the speech was about secular Jews rediscovering this traditional heritage. So the fact that this is happening is both fascinating, but also, I would argue, not entirely shocking, because this is the story that the Talmud has had with lots of different factions in modernity. But the other piece of what you were talking about is, in addition to these things that's that are happening within um, the Jewish community, the Talmud is, off, is also gaining a broad readership outside the Jewish community, um, broader than ever. And the two contexts that, um, that come up are ecumenical religious dialogues. So there, there has been a lot of interest among, among um, Christian ministers and in Christian theological seminaries in the Talmud for quite some time. I think Jacob Neusner's work was very influential in this regard. Right. And, um, and, and, and Neusner's own work was so, so invested in the, in the Jewish-Christian in, um, encounter that, that he wrote a lot about it, and he ended up being invited by uh, Pope Benedict to the Vatican to discuss these matters. And I, I think there was a period of time in which um, Christian intellectuals were interested in rabbinic literature because it facilitated uh, the production of context around the rise of early Christianity. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's changing. I think that, that, that Christian intellectuals are interested in the Talmud just because the Talmud has content that is parallel to um, Christian intellectual production and has a certain depth. And you can, sort of, you can, you can, you can compare that depth to the depth that, that's happening within early Christian intellectual circles, and I think it, quite productively. So that's one area where the Talmud is, um, is gaining new readers and developing new interpretations. Another area is um, within the academy, and I talk about, I talk about um, the contributions of Emmanuel Levinas within critical right. theory, and Robert Cover within legal theory, and Hermann Cohen within philosophy. Uh, three different scholars with very different understandings of what the Talmud is, but whose work is very 
influenced by the Talmud. And I think the, the most, the clearest example of this, when, when critical theory, which is, can be thought of as a branch of literary theory that combines, um, combines literary theory with psychoanalytic theory and with philosophy and political science, um, when, when, when theory, as it's sometimes referred to, had its heyday in the 1980s, Mm-hmm. There was a there was a a recognition by theorists that some of what the rabbis did in terms of their hermeneutics, in terms of their understanding of their interpretation, especially in midrash with its very creative, almost free play like forms of interpretation, were anticipating some of the post structuralist concepts of a Jacques Derrida. Some of the ideas of the fact that, that knowledge is not about um, essential concepts, but it's always being um, produced with it, it's always in a, it produced in a kind of unstable way in a self-deconstructing way. And so people liked Midrash because it, it, it called its own essential truths into question. And the Talmud is the same way. The Talmud is a, it specializes in a kind of knowledge production that is always multiple, always dialogical in the sense of presenting dialogues between different figures and dialogues between different types of texts and genres of texts and not resolving its own conversations in such a way that the Talmud is the ultimate self-deconstructing text. And in a way undermines its own authority or is it can be yeah. accused of that. It can be accused of undermining its own authority, but I think that that which that that feature of the Talmud, which was profoundly embarrassing post-Enlightenment rationalists in the 19th century is now something that's coming to be celebrated because as we um, no longer romanticize rationalism and reason, instead we recognize diversity and pluralism and different subjectivities and the fact that, that the most essential claims have to be undermined by recognizing where they come from and splitting them up into, into different realities or different ways, of, ways in which they're going to be received the Talmud presents itself as a model of something that, that is very old and yet is already doing that. So I think this is part of the modern fascination with Talmud, is that the Talmud speaks to us now in a way that maybe it didn't speak to us, you know, 100 years ago. What do you see as um, the most recent uh, meaningful innovations in the study of Talmud, both in the academy and in outside the academic and outside the Jewish world? And what do you think is coming that we don't see yet? Um, in the field of Talmud, the major revolution that happened in the field of Talmud happened um, beginning in the 1970s when um, David Weiss Halivni and Shama Friedman simultaneously but not together established quite clearly that so much of the Talmud is the result of an editing layer, an anonymous editing layer that structures and interprets the earlier materials that are quoted inside the Talmud. And since since the 70s, one can see what's been going on in the academy to some extent, specifically within those people who read text very closely in the original language, um, that what's been going on is uh, this massive anthology that we call the Talmud or the Babylonian Talmud uh, is going to take a while for us to fully absorb the ramifications of that kind of insight on a, such a major corpus. So what we've been seeing is for the past you know, generation or so, people looking at the Talmud with completely new eyes in light of this major, um, major transformation of how the Talmud is thought of. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one of the major changes. Another major change, another major change that I would associate with Jacob Neusner is the realization that even though the Talmud is a really tempting historical source, it's our biggest archive of Jewish texts from the period, from between 70 and 750, the period of the rabbis. It is the biggest archive of, of, of Jewish ideas by far. And yet, we've come to realize, thanks to Neusner, that much of it is not historically reliable. Uh, certainly when it makes claims about historical facts and figures, we have to take those with a grain of salt. So that's another thing that the field has been processing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other, and the last, the last thing that the field has been really processing is um, 
the the turn towards theory that I referenced um, that has been that has been really um, profoundly influential in the academy at large, but particularly I think when it comes to studying any kind of literature, the realization that when you're studying literature. There are all kinds of different lenses, and you could, you could take a Marxist lens, and you could take a feminist lens, and you could take a psychoanalytic lens or a political lens, and the lenses that you use um, will extract different types of meaning from the text. And uh, since the work of Daniel Boyarin really started this rolling, um, that has also been a major transformation in the field, that people are now looking at the Talmud and looking at passages in light of these different theoretical frameworks and coming up with with completely new ways of reading the text. Right. So I mean that those those are the three major things I think that have happened in the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of in in terms of what's coming, um, you know, and, and outside the academy, one of the surprising things is that despite the fact that the number of yeshiva students studying Talmud and traditional yeshivas is higher than it has ever been. Um, we are su- seeing surprisingly little novelty in yeshiva-produced Talmud study. So there, there aren't new works of Talmud interpretation that are coming out that are changing the way people study. Um, that, that could be the subject of an entirely different interview and conversation. Well, uh, there are so many questions I wanted to ask you. That was one of them. And the other was, uh, just for a slight detour, but I think it's related yeah, to what you're yeah. saying, is that, and you deal with this in the book, that the standardization of printing and formatting of the Talmud means that the text itself has stopped changing. Has that affected a, a similar, um, has that inhibited innovation, do you think, in the study of the text? Not as much as you might think. I don't. I, I don't think it actually inhibits innovation all that much. I mean, I think the move to stabilize the text, which is a function of the success of printing, and the way that that a specific edition of the Talmud, the 1880s Vilna edition, has become so religiously symbolic of the Talmud that one in certain circles is not allowed to replace it and is not allowed to change the format. Or if one does mm-hmm. change the format, it won't be venerated in the same way. So I mean, I think that part of that story, part of why the text is stabilized is as a way of, uh, it's a kind of traditionalism. It's a traditionalist response to the threat of heresy of a Ruve Malter, of a text uh-huh. critic who's going to be using historical data like different manuscripts to change the text. Right. So I think there, there is a little bit of that going on, and certainly that comes across explicitly when uh, the Chazon Ish, who's a, a distinguished uh, Israeli rabbi, and he wrote in the, uh, in the 1980s that um, even though he knew that there were other manuscripts of the Talmud with different texts, he wrote that uh, the, the text that we have in the official printed Vilna edition is the text we use because that was divine providence that we would end up with that text. And so no one is, is responsible anymore for the other uh, different versions of the text. Um, so there, there definitely is that. There is a little bit of that going on. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that, that the, the, the manuscripts of the Talmud and the different versions of the Talmud are much, much less unstable. They're much more stable than people realize. Like when we talk about variation among the Talmud texts, you know, maybe 3% of the words of the Talmud are subject to differences, and many of those are just differences of style that don't really affect meaning. Uh-huh. So there, it, it can be overplayed how much the, the, the manuscript differences um, affect things. I see. Um, but but I, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of whether the stabilization of the text, I mean, I, I think that it is the case that when you stabilize the Talmud in a standard printed edition with a standard set of commentaries around, it does cement the idea that those commentaries are the canon, and that's right. what you should be right. looking at. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there is a limited, the Talmud is vast, and, it, and you know, you could spend, uh, as I did in Yeshiva, you can spend, you know, weeks on a single page just looking at all the different commentaries that exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can, you can move faster, and if you're moving faster, you'll, you'll look at the three or four comments that are on the page because those are the easiest ones for you to access. Right. So there's definitely something about that. I think that there, there is less attention paid to um, more obscure texts. But one of the things that's happening within traditional circles, and probably because of the lack of innovation in terms of the way people read, um, 
is uh, there actually now, even within traditional circles, there's now a turn towards text criticism that's happening um, that I've noticed, even within the last decade. There's more among the ultra-Orthodox, especially in Israel, there's, there's a turn back towards let's make additions with manuscripts. And, 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 and uh, you know, they're never going to, they're not going to change the Vilna text to reflect those changes, but they're definitely going to want to put out editions that have those varying variants. Which, which would have been unheard of even a short time ago. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah. My, my last question is for you is really a simple one, but it, it was became more and more, I, I got really excited about asking you this question as I read the book. What did you learn about the Talmud in the process of writing this book? Um, in the process of writing this book, I learned a lot of I learned a lot of facts and figures of things that I just did not know. So I, I learned um, I learned, for example, of this incredible story of the um, the rivalry between the the printing of the Vilna edition and the printing of the Slavuta edition, and how the Slavuta edition um, it's called a Slavuta edition because Slavuta was a uh, is a city in the Ukraine where it was where it was um, published. And how the Saluta edition had all this drama with a uh, someone in the printing house committing suicide by hanging himself in the printing house, and then the Russian government coming in and shutting it down. I had never heard any of these stories, so there were like a lot of fascinating little things that I learned in producing the book. But I also feel like um, my overall framework that we talked about earlier of the essential, enhanced, and emblematic—that's something that I learned it through writing the book. Um, that I only came up with that framework really late in the process of producing the book, uh-huh. um, and it was when I was I was trying to properly articulate well, what is the difference between traditional learning and critical learning, and, and then how do I do how how do, you know what what does it mean what is that meaning of the Talmud when someone who's a follower of Shabtai Tzvi is uh, you know you know, resisting the Talmud and claiming that the Talmud represents a different form of Judaism. And so my my framework that I produced with the essential and the enhanced and the emblematic uh, came about as a result of writing the book. It was one of the last things that I came to um, because I was trying to understand this material that I had laid out in front of me. So I, I think that I, I always learn a lot when I write things. Um, yeah. And that's uh, and I find that as a writer, you have to be open to um, really deeply revising things when you have a new epiphany and you realize, oh, I've learned a lot. I probably need to rewrite this now. Well, and in a way that makes you a lot like the the Stam who had the Talmud laid out in front of them and probably made changes on the basis of what they had learned. Yeah, I'll take that analogy any day. <laughs> uh, I greatly enjoyed speaking with you today. My guest today has been Barry Scott Wimpheimer, and we've been talking about his book, The Talmud, a biography published this year by Princeton University Press as part of its Lives of Great Religious Book series. Professor Wimpheimer, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, David.